Hey mamas, it's Megan, your host here at the VBAC Link. I am so excited to get into our amazing episode today, but before we do, I wanted to do a quick Q&A on my number one most asked question, which is how do I prepare for a VBAC? I know it's a lot to unpack, but here are some of the top answers for you. Find a VBAC supportive provider and make sure you are getting the right nutrition. This includes getting optimal amounts of protein, vitamins, and minerals to support a healthy VBAC pregnancy. I personally recommend Needed's prenatals to all of my clients and to this amazing community of ours. Head to thisisneeded.com to get 20% off with code VBAC20. That is thisisneeded.com, code VBAC20. Hello, guys. This is the VBAC link. Welcome back. Or if you're new to the show, welcome. We are so happy that you are here. My name is Megan, and I am so excited to have a returning guest with us today. We have Dr. Nathan Fox, who is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist with the subspecialty in maternal fetal medicine. He is here answering your guys' questions. This community is amazing. And every time we reach out and say, hey, what are your VBAC questions? We do. We get a ton. And I love bringing on guests, especially within the medical world, right? OBs and midwives talking about these things with you and what they're seeing and what the evidence says. And it's always fun to kind of get a different provider's perspective and get a better idea on what really the research is showing. So welcome back, Dr. Nathan Fox. But of course, we have a review of the week. So I wanted to quickly get into that and then get into these amazing questions, which by the way, are questions like induction, when or is it really necessary? Can it be induced with a VBAC? We're going to talk about more about uterine rupture and the risks, um, which is of course the burning question that everyone always has. We're going to talk about maybe if a provider has told you that they've seen something like a uterine window or even a dehiscence or even a niche. We're going to talk a little bit more about those. So definitely stay with us because this is going to be a really great episode. This uh, review is by Elizabeth Perea. Perea, hopefully I did not botch that. And she actually sent us in an email, which if you didn't know, we love getting reviews in emails as well. So you can leave us a review on social media. You can read on like, and on Instagram, you can message it in on that, or you can email us at info at the vbacklink.com, or you can leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or you can even Google the VBAC link and leave us a review there. All of your reviews help women of strength, just like you find us and find these incredible stories and these incredible episodes like today's episode with these providers to learn more about their options for birth after cesarean. Elizabeth says, thank you so much for creating this whole community. After my emergency C-section in 2019, I looked up everything possible about being able to be back. This led me to your wonderful podcast and blog. I devoured everything. I owe my knowledge to you all and my doulas. I'm happy to say that I had my VBAC on March 31st and it was the most magical experience ever. Thank you so much for all the materials that you have provided, whichever, whichever helps me succeed. I hope that one day to share my story on your podcast. Many, many thanks. 
And that was just mid last, let's see, no, 2022. So a couple of years ago, she left that review. So hopefully, Elizabeth, you are still with us and listening to all these amazing stories. And we would love to share your story, which also leads me to um, remind you that we are always looking for submissions. You can submit your story on our website at thevbacklink.com slash share. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, you guys, we have Dr. Fox back on the show today with us. Like, How cool is that that he's come on now twice with us? to talk about VBAC and answer your guys' questions. Dr. Fox, welcome to the show again, and thank you again for being here. Back on VBAC. Back on (laughs) VBAC. Back talking about VBAC. And VBAC is, you know, it's, I don't know, tell me, tell me what you think about this VBAC topic. Um, And how does VBAC look for OBs? Because I think a lot of the times, OBs and midwives, but providers in general, they can kind of get some backlash because... No, and and honestly, even from us here at the VBAC link where we're like, oh, that's not a good, you know, a supportive mm-hmm. provider. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot that we as a community really don't take into account on mm-hmm. where a provider's coming from. Maybe like right. what they've seen, what they've gone through, maybe even like they want to support VBAC, but maybe their location, their the, the yeah. location that they support, you know. So can we talk about VBAC from an OB's standpoint like what does VBAC look like for an OB yeah listen it's a great question thanks for having me again I'm, I'm always happy to come on I I really I really like this topic medically but also it's just very interesting because there's mm-hmm. so much that comes up with VBAC in terms of obviously the medicine surrounding it but also it's it's a really good paradigm for how do people look at risk and by people I mean doctors, I mean, nurses, I mean, hospitals, I mean, women who are pregnant, thinking of being pregnant, their families, their friends, because there isn't a ton of disagreement about the numbers, right? Like, what is the risk percentage? It's like, we have that worked out pretty well. I mean, there's some things that maybe are a little bit more nebulous, but those are the rare situations. Most people agree on what the actual numbers are. The issue is, how what do you do about that when someone has a small <laughs> when someone has a small risk of a big problem right right you, right so what what do you do and that personality comes into that and i think that that's part of the reason that there's so much variation in vback practices vback attitudes vback rules and it's just it's risk and so you know, I, I talk to people about this all the time in other contexts, like with genetic screening. And mm-hmm. I tell people, all right, all your genetic tests are normal. All the screening tests are normal. We did. Everything is fine. 
which means that your risk of having a baby with a genetic condition now is 1%, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell them that. Some people hear that and say, that's awesome. And then they walk out and other people go, oh my God, 1%, that's unbelievably horrible. And they sign up and do a CVS and Amnio. And neither of them are wrong, right? 1% uh-huh. is what? 1% is 1%. 1%, it's one in, yeah. Right, it's one in a hundred. And people are going to look at that differently based on their understanding of math, based on their personal experiences, based on the stories they've heard, based on their own anxieties, based on who's in their family, based on what, all these things contribute to someone's Mm-hmm. opinion about a risk that's low. So take VBAC, for example. So if everything is otherwise sort of ideal, you know, healthy woman had a prior C-section that was, you know, standard, nothing crazy about it. She hasn't had pregnancies going fine. And she's discussing or deciding whether to attempt a VBAC or whether to do a repeat cesarean, people are going to talk to her about the risk of uterine rupture. And that risk is ballpark 1%, whatever. It's about 1%. Right. Okay. It's the same thing. How does everyone look at 1%? I could look at it and say, well, 1% is pretty low. It's only one in a hundred. I really want a vaginal birth because I want it or because it's going to give me an easier recovery potentially, or because I'm afraid of a C-section or whatever. Yeah. Or they can look at it and say, holy crap, 1%. I don't want any part of that risk. And I'm just going to do an, a repeat C-section. And I don't think either of those opinions are unreasonable. I think no. that they're they're both reasonable based on how you look at it. And so if you have a situation where everyone's aligned, the doctor thinks it's reasonable, the patient, the woman, she thinks it's reasonable, the hospital thinks it's reasonable then it's not a big discussion. Then, you know, okay, we talk about it and the VBAC happens. And that's sort of where I practice. That's the culture in my practice and in my hospital amongst my patient population. We talk about it. Many people want to do a VBAC. They want it. We're supportive. The hospital's supportive. The nurses are supportive. Great. Some patients don't want to have it. Fine. We're supportive Mm -hmm. of a C-section. The hospital's supportive. All's good. I think the issue comes up when there's disconnect. Like Mm -hmm. the patient wants it the doctor thinks it's too risky or the patient and the doctor think it's fine, but the hospital thinks it's too risky or right. whatever. There's all of these situations. Yes. And since, you know, doctors are humans and patients are humans and hospitals, even the hospitals are buildings, they're run by humans. Exactly. You're going to have a lot of humanity and humans and all of our fallibilities and flaws and quirks come into this. And that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think that's why it's so, there's so much discussion about this because it's not the numbers, it's the attitudes, it's the opinions, which is why so much about VBAC is not trying to figure out your number, it's just trying to make sure that you have an aligned vision with your provider and with your hospital. Right. I love that you pointed that out. Like, it's the perspective on this number. Like we know the number is say 1%. Right. But to some people that 1% may be 60% right. in their mind. Like it like it might as well be 60. Like you know what right. I mean? So I love that you talked about the like being aligned. And that's something that we talk about here a lot is really being aligned with your team. Like finding your team because your team is super important. So the mom, the doctor, the hospital, the location, you know, the nurses, those are all, everything's aligned. And so maybe we don't have to fight so hard 
Because I yeah. feel like I feel like this community ends up feeling like they have to fight for right. their only the the their birthing right, <laughs> like yeah. the way they want to birth, right? They feel like they literally have to come in with punching bags and punch their way through to to get this vaginal birth. Right. Um, and that is where it's just it's so hard, and we're so vulnerable yeah. as pregnant yeah. women, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I would. So that's an unfortunate reality. It's obviously a reality, but I would, I would not counter because I don't disagree with it, but I would mm -hmm. advise instead of coming in with gloves up, ready to fight, mm -hmm. you need a different provider, Boom. meaning it's, it's not, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to disparage a provider who's less pro VBAC. They're humans. They, wh whatever it is, maybe the doctor had a really bad outcome once with a VBAC and they're exactly. scarred from it. Exactly. Maybe, yeah, maybe were they trained the attitude is very anti-VBAC, and so they're just not used to it. Maybe mm -hmm. they would be okay with it, but they just practice in an environment where the hospital's not so happy with it or mm -hmm. the nurses aren't. Whatever it might be, it's not if your provider is sort of telling you, I am not a big fan of VBAC, they're telling you this. Listen to them. Like, mm -hmm. okay, like that doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't no. mean they're bad, it doesn't even mean they're a bad doctor. It just means that's who they are. And so if you have an opportunity, seek someone who's more aligned with you. And again, obviously that's easier said than done. It mm -hmm. requires some work. It requires some legwork. It requires asking around, going on message boards, finding people. But yeah. if you have a prior C-section and you're interested in a VBAC, if the doctor says he or she is not comfortable, I would first ask why, right? If they give you like, well, listen, normally I'm in favor of VBAC, but since you had a classical C-section, it's too dangerous. All right, that's a very reasonable explanation that pretty much everyone's going to tell you and yeah. switching around is probably not going to help you. But if they say, listen, I just don't do VBACs or my hospital just doesn't do them, they're telling you that for a reason. Say, okay, thank mm -hmm. you, you know, have a good day. And then try to ask around and find someone or some hospital or someplace that is in favor mm -hmm. of them, as opposed to trying to convince someone to do something they're not comfortable with. Absolutely. And so I think because that ends up being a combative relationship and ends poorly yeah. for everyone. And so it would be great if all doctors were totally supportive. It would be great if all hospitals were totally supportive. There are sometimes logistical issues, meaning since VBAC has the potential for an emergency, the hospitals need to have, you know, 24-7 anesthesia. They need to have a blood bank. Like they need to have certain things in place in order to safely offer a VBAC. And some hospitals are just too small to do that. And it it's not like an attitude. It's like, logistically, we just can't mm -hmm. do this. Fine. Again, then try to go to a major medical center that mm -hmm. does a lot of VBAC. Most major medical centers are comfortable with VBAC. Most yeah. doctors who practice in those centers are comfortable with VBAC. And mm -hmm. so I think if you do the legwork, you can probably, not always, but probably find someone who's a better match for you for your VBAC, as opposed to trying to convince someone to do something they're not comfortable doing. Yes. I love that. So we don't have to try to convince. And so that's why like listeners, when you are, when you're with your provider, OB, midwife, whoever it may be, talk to them, have that discussion, ask them that question. Don't be scared to ask them why. And then like, for me with my second, I, I kind of had this feeling that maybe I would, that maybe he wasn't as on board for VBAC, right. As maybe I wanted him to. And I was scared to leave or scared to hurt his feelings. But like, 
I think that it probably would have been better for both of us in the end to have found a different supportive, you know, a provider that was more on board and comfortable and me versus me trying to go in and push and try and make him do something that again, he wasn't comfortable with because he wasn't comfortable with that. And that's, and that's okay. And like this provider, right? Like for a long time, I had a lot of anger and I think a lot of our community, like they have harbored anger, but like, I think this, I'd like to drop a message to our community, like try not to harbor the anger. Like my provider is a great guy, a great doc, all these things. He just wasn't the doc for me. So I'm the doc for you. Right. right? I think, listen, obviously there's a lot of doctors in the world and I'm sure that there are bad doctors or mean doctors or people who aren't good people out there. I'm sure they exist, but I would say my experience is most doctors are good people who are trying to do right by their patients. It's it's mm-hmm. too much work to go into medicine and train mm-hmm. to like to go into it to like dislike patients. It just doesn't make any sense. So I right. my experience is most people are trying to do right by their patients, but we're all human and we all look at risks differently and we've all had different experiences. And that happens. Like humans mm-hmm. are varied. It's human. it's part of the reason <laughs> it's part of the reason it's wonderful to be a human. Like we're all right. different and that's great. And so I think it's but it's not it's not complicated to get this answer from your doctor. I think it just requires some preparation, meaning ask these questions very early, either mm-hmm. before you get pregnant or early in pregnancy. And it's not, again, they're not complicated questions. I would say the first question you should ask is something related to the numbers. Say, what is my risk if I try VBAC? Me personally, right? And if they say, well, your risk of it is it's a uterine rupture, say, well, what is what is the number risk, right? Mm-hmm. The risk is uterine rupture. And if they say, well, it's probably about 1%. Okay, that's the number. Now, if they say it's much higher than 1%, well, why? Is it because I've had a classical C-section or I've had three prior C-sections or whatever it is? Okay, but get the number. And then the second question, very open-ended, non-judgmental. Just say, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. or opinions about VBAC? Mm-hmm. It just, that's it, open-ended. Exactly. They will tell they will tell you, right? That no one's gonna hide it from you. They'll either no. tell they'll either tell you overtly and say, I love it, it's awesome, <laughs> I'm all over it, this is great, I hope you try it, or they'll say, Not a big fan, I don't really like it, it's not my thing, we don't do it. I've never I haven't done it in 20 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or potentially there'll be somewhere in the middle say, Well, you know, I kind of like it, but but and you'll sort of you'll know. Right. Yep. You'll know right yep. away what their thoughts are. And then the second question is, assuming that they're supportive, the hospital where you deliver, mm-hmm. what's the attitude there about VBAC? Yes. And if they say, you know, I'm really in favor of it, but the hospital is awful. They torture me every time there's a VBAC. They make me be there the entire time. They're they always make me do C-sections. They're they're it's just a terrible environment. You know, maybe not right. Right. Either of those two reasons is probably a reason to look elsewhere. But if they tell you, I'm an, I'm on board, the hospital's on board, doesn't mean you'll have a VBAC, but it means, you know, you've got a plan in place and you're ready to right. go. And if they tell you, I don't like that, I don't do that, it's early. Say, okay, I really appreciate that. You know, thank yeah. you for your perspective. Thank you for your honesty. I'm really interested in VBAC. I, I might be seeking a different doctor or a different hospital. You know, please don't take that personally. And they'll probably say, thank you. They don't, you know. Yeah. Exactly. No, it, it, the doctors don't want a situation where they have a combative relationship. No. That's horrible. Yes. We hate, it's like, it's awful. Like that, that's what keeps us up at night. And yeah. so, and so it's that's, and do it at the very beginning. And it, no one's going to have hard feelings over that. 
I would yep. say it's unusual that people are going to try to convince you to stay be- for the money. It's it's not doctors don't want that. They'd rather have you go somewhere else than go to them and want something that they don't want you to have. It, it's just that's just how doctors are. I love that you just made that point because it is hard to leave and you get worried about hurt feelings and all of that. So thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Okay. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about induction because this is a really hot topic when it comes to someone wanting Mm -hmm. to TOLAC or have a VBAC. So I guess the question is, is, you know, when is it, when is it really necessary? Like what is the evidence on induction and VBAC? Because it, it just like support, it varies all around where some people are absolutely no induction, have to go into spontaneous labor. Some are like, yeah, cool, no problem. You can totally be induced. Or some are like, you have to, you have to be induced. And then when it comes to induction, it that also ranges of like, you know, maybe we can't do a fully or a cook or or we can't use pit and we can only break your water or, you know, all these right. things. So can we talk right. about the evidence and when right. is when is VBAC v, like specific to VBAC? I mean, induction right, right. can be necessary. There's a ton right. of reasons for induction, right. but right. when is it really necessary? Right. So instead of talking about when it's really necessary, I think the question is why is it why is it even a, a question? And the reason is <laughs> yeah. the the best evidence we have. It's not perfect evidence, but the best evidence we have is that someone who's undergoing VBAC who has induced labor, her risk of a uterine rupture is about one and a half to two times as high as if she went into labor on her own. So for example, if your risk was about 1% of a uterine rupture and you get induced, your risk is now about 2%, Mm one and a half to 2%. Now, if your risk was a little bit lower, because maybe you've had a vaginal delivery before. So if you've had a vaginal delivery, your risk is at 1%, it's closer to a half of a percent, it'll raise it to maybe 1%. One. Mm-hmm. Again, I say it's the best data available because the studies that were done are there's a little bit of a flaw in them because they're not randomized, but it seems to be correct that inducing increases your risk slightly. The one exception is if you induce with something called mesoprostol, the risk seems to be much higher. And so pretty much nobody induces with mesoprostol if there's a prior C-section. That's usually something that nobody does. But the other ways of inducing, whether that's breaking the water, whether it's Pitocin, whether it's a Foley balloon and all those things, seems to increase the risk slightly. So again, it's the same thing as before. Mm -hmm. If now I have someone whose risk isn't 1%, but 2%, how do I view that? How does the hospital view it? How does the patient view it? Now, obviously, 1% and 2% are not hugely different from each other, but you could also look at it and say it's double, right? And Mm -hmm. so you you can sort of think of it in two different ways. And so based on that, there are definitely doctors or hospitals who would say, I'm comfortable with VBAC, but I'm not comfortable with inducing the labor in someone who's a VBAC. Now, in our practice, that's not our position. We will induce someone's labor. We tell them your risk is a little bit higher. It's 2% mm-hmm. versus 1% or something like that. But we but we would, again, unless there's a reason not to, we would induce someone's labor, but different people look at it differently. So again, another right. question to ask to your doctor is not only how are you with VBAC, but how are you with inductions and VBAC? Mm-hmm. And if they say, well, I'm okay with VBAC if you go into labor on your own, but I'm not okay with VBAC if you need to get induced, does that mean you have to switch doctors? Well, it just means you have, you know, a potential 
limitation block in the end right a potential one again it depends on the circumstances obviously in each case might be unique so that's number one number two there is some data that when you induce the labor in a VBAC, your success rate is lower that data is weaker and it's a little bit complicated because the data in non-VBACs is that if you induce labor, the success rate is not lower, meaning it does not increase your risk of C-section. Whether it's different than someone who had a VBAC has not been studied appropriately to know mm-hmm. for sure. So it's it either has no effect like in everyone else, or we can use the older data that's flawed and say it does increase the risk of needing a C-section, but that's really more related to the chance of success, not so much related to the risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, some people will use in order to make a decision about VBAC, they're weighing the risk versus the chance of success. So it may impact sort of the balance, the scales, but that's really the concern with induction. Now, the only reason that I can think of that someone would insist that someone is having a VBAC be induced always is only because they're concerned of them laboring at home and they want to have their entire labor watched in a hospital. Mm -hmm. I I don't, that's not the strategy we use, but again, it depends geographically how far do people live from the hospital. Mm -hmm. We talked about that on our last episode. Yeah. Do they typically wait forever to come to the hospital? So again, is it worth it a slight increase in risk of 1% to induce as opposed to having them go into labor and wait four hours before they get to the hospital. That's a strategic decision that is going to be very individualized, obviously. Mm-hmm. But that would be, as far as I can think of, off the top of my head, the only reason one would say you need to be induced because it's a VBAC specifically. Now, there's reasons to be induced all over the place, obviously, obstetrically, right. uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. If someone needs to be induced, they need to be induced, and then it's a decision about that. And we listen, when I counsel people about VBAC essentially they fall into three groups. One group says, again, assuming it's an option for them, right? I think it's Uh a safe option. Option one is I want a VBAC. Option two is I don't want a VBAC. I want a C-section. And option three is I want a VBAC, but only if I go into labor on my own and I don't want to be induced. And that's based on, again, the risk, the chance of success, the experience, all of these things. And those Mm -hmm. are sort of the three places people land. And that's fine. And obviously you can switch from one group to another over the course of pregnancy based on how things are evolving but that's really the, the decisions that someone's going to make. I'm trying for VBAC. I have I want nothing to do with VBAC or I'm into it, but only if I go into labor on my own. And that's mm-hmm. something you want to make sure, see what your doctor thinks about that as well. Yeah. Okay. I love that so much because yeah, induction is just, I mean, in, like, like we said, like there's so many reasons why right. it could, like preeclampsia and all these things, mm-hmm. right? Like, but yeah, like just wondering like why you would have to be induced in order to VBAC. Right. Hello, women of strength. Today's episode is brought to you by Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Let's talk about lactation. Are you planning on breastfeeding? Or maybe you just had your baby and are looking for some extra lactation support. Well, Needed's lactation support plan pairs three essential products to optimally support your breast milk supply, and it's a great addition to mom's overall postpartum care. The plan includes hydration support, which offers electrolytes in optimal ratios to help replace what is lost through lactation. The powder comes in three delicious flavors, lemon lime, grapefruit, and lightly sweetened with only real fruit. It also includes collagen protein since an optimal amount of protein is needed to support breast milk supply, caloric needs, and the blood sugar balance. 
As you may know already, the collagen protein is my fave. Collagen protein can easily be added to smoothies, tea, coffee, and other food and drink. And because stress can impact supply, the plan includes needed stress support, which offers clinical strength, herbal stress, and lactation support. Save 20% off your first order of Needed's lactation support plan or any of their perinatal nutrition products at thisisneeded.com using promo code VBAC20. Okay, so let's talk about cervical exams. This is also a hot topic in our community about routine cervical exams or or um, having a cervical exam prior to even um, labor beginning mm-hmm. to determine the likelihood or the success of a VBAC. So can we talk about the evidence of just like cervical exams during labor in general, right? physiological birth, everyone's kind of like, we just don't want to be touched. We just want let, we just want birth to happen. But you know, when we come to hospitals, sometimes it's a little bit more routine where they want to know the data that's happening, right? <laughs> the cervix and things like that. But then also what's the evidence on actually determining someone's success rate, I guess, before labor even begins based off of where they're dilated. Right. So those are two totally separate reasons we would check the cervix. So in terms of someone in labor, there is a tremendous amount of variation in frequency of cervical exams in labor Mm -hmm. based on the provider, based on the culture, based on the patient. And so there isn't one way to do it. But the reason one would have their cervix checked in labor is just to assess how is the labor progressing and Mm -hmm. everybody does it right doctors do it midwives do it you know Mm -hmm. like home birth attendants do it people check the cervix now the question Mm -hmm. is not do you check the cervix is how frequently do i check the cervix and what do i and what do i do about it and that's going to vary greatly across Mm -hmm. everything but it's the evidence is actually that it's not harmful again i'm not saying it's not painful or annoying or uncomfortable certainly if you don't have an epidural so you know, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about the actual like risk involved. Um, there are some people who say the more cervical exams increase the risk of an infection. Mm-hmm. The data on that is actually really pretty weak, amazingly, mm-hmm. um, because when we do the exams, like we wear gloves, right? These are, it's not like, you know, these are sterile hand. conditions. And number one, number two, some of the data that indicates that more cervical exams are associated with more infection are really just more cervical exams are frequently a marker for a longer labor. The longer your labor, the more exams you're going to have. And a longer labor is definitely a risk factor for infection. So it's not exactly clear in that sense. And also, if anything, if it's ever going to be a risk, it's only once your water is already broken. If your water is not broken, there's no reason to think it should increase your risk of an infection or there's at least not good data to support that. So I would say in labor, there's a lot of variation in that you know, again, it, it's hard to say there isn't like one way of doing it. Um, but the reason to do it is just assess how labor is progressing to make decisions like, do I need to give Pitocin or not? Do I need to do a C-section or not? Is this someone who I want to break their water or not? Is this someone who we can tell, you know what, just like rest and I'm going to go home and come back in the morning or not? You know, mm-hmm. all those types of things. When is she going to deliver? All that stuff. Fine. Now, before labor, examining someone's cervix, like in the office or before we do anything in labor, the data on that is originally meant to give a prediction of 
when someone's going to go into labor on their own. Meaning if you examine someone, the term we use, which is kind of crude, is ripe. If a cervix is ripe mm-hmm. versus unripe, for some reason, doctors love to compare things to foods and fruit. specifically and specifically fruits. <laughs> but that's I don't yeah. I don't know, maybe whatever. Maybe we grew up in a tree-based society. I'm not sure, <laughs> but whatever. So it's it's crude, but that's the term that's out there. And the thought is if the cervix is ripe and the components of that are it's a little bit open, it's short, it's soft, it's what we call anterior, meaning in mm-hmm. front of the head versus like all the way behind the head, and the head is low the likelihood that person's going to go into labor on her own in the next week or so is higher than if her cervix is unripe. That's why it was invented. Now, I personally found that to be mostly useless because, okay, if someone's chance is, let's say, 40% versus 20%, like, what does that mean? Like, nothing. She can go, like, you you can, I mean, you can go, you can have a very unripe cervix and go into labor that night. Right. And you could be three centimeters dilated and not go into labor for two weeks. What's the difference if your chance is 40 versus 20%? Like, what are you going to do about that? Like nothing. Mm-hmm. And so in our office, in our practice, we don't routinely check the cervix before 38 weeks. And then at 38 weeks, we sort of offer it as an option. A lot of people want to know what's going on with their cervix. A lot mm-hmm. of curiosity out there. If someone doesn't want to know, that's fine. We're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons it might be helpful practically might, I'm not saying definitively, is let's say someone called me at night, it's three in the morning, and they're like, I'm having some cramping, I'm having some contractions, they're not so bad, they're this, they're that, I live two hours away, and I saw her that day in the office and her cervix was long and closed, I mm-hmm. may feel differently than if I saw her and her cervix is already four centimeters dilated, right? right? So, okay, there's some practical information that's to be gleaned, but it's not always that useful. Now, when you're inducing someone's labor, it does give you a sense of the likelihood of success and what agent you're going to use or not use. And so that's the reason you'll do it either on admission to labor delivery for an induction or maybe in the office just before to sort of plan the induction because what we do is based on the cervix. For VBAC specifically, it's not like it needs to be done, but Obviously, Mm -hmm. my thoughts about someone who's trying to VBAC are going to be different if at 38 weeks, she's three centimeters dilated, the cervix is soft and the head is low versus her cervix is long and closed and firm and the head is like, you know, way up near her nose, right? That's Mm going to be a much, I'm just going to think about it differently and I'm going to counsel her a little bit differently. And then it may be practical, may, but it's not usually tremendously helpful clinically is what I would say. Okay. So for our listeners, kind of what you're saying is like, you can get the information, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to have a VBAC or you're not a good, you're no longer a good candidate. If at 38, we'll say 38 weeks, you got a long, hard posterior cervix. It doesn't mean you might just have different counsel or have different discussion. It, okay. Yeah. It, 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 again, it might be that it might slightly change your odds one way or another, but it's not usually something that's that we use as a decision-making tool about you should or shouldn't be back. Again, it may, if let's say, I'll give you an example where it might be useful. Let's say I have a situation where someone has a prior C-section, they're thinking about VBAC or they're interested in it, but they have some concerns, right? They're like most people, they, they're they're interested, yeah. but they have some concerns. And they're 38 weeks. And let's say the baby's measuring a little bit small and her blood pressure is a little bit high. And I say, you know what? 
we need to deliver you. We need to do so. We need to deliver you. Mm-hmm. And at that point, there isn't an option of being in spontaneous labor. It's either mm-hmm. I induce her. And if I don't induce her, we have to do a C-section. Those are the two options on the table because waiting, be wait, waiting is not a safe option anymore. Fine. It's possible that my counseling will be different if when I do a cervical exam, it's long and firm and the head is high versus the head is low and the cervix is dilated and soft. And I'll, because I'll tell her, listen, inducing your labor in one situation is likely going to take a long time. Your success rate's a little bit lower versus it's going to be a shorter time. Again, likely, not definitively. And your success, success rate's going to be higher. It's possible that she might say, all right, I don't want an induction if my service looked like this, or I do want an induction mm-hmm. if my service looks like this. So it's part of decision-making potentially, but usually that's if I'm about to induce her labor versus do a C-section. If she's going home either way, right? If it's just the Tuesday and it's 38 weeks and there's nothing wrong and I'm either I'm just sending her home and she'll either come back in labor or come back in a week, then it's not going to matter much if her cervix is open or closed on that day. Mm-hmm. It's really if I have to make a decision about delivery, that it'll be more practical. And that's something that I love about you is just like you have yes (laughs) i do like you just it's like let's let's talk about this it's not just like like you you offer counsel you offer i don't know you just offer more it's not just like you have to does the way you talk anyway it doesn't seem like you i mean i've never been a patient in your clinic but um so i'm talking very broad of what i feel like i love about you (laughs) um but like it doesn't seem like you're kind of like it's black or white it's hey this is what we have this is what we're showing this is right this is where baby is or you are and it's no longer safe to be pregnant for you or baby here are the options based off of that person as an individual right there it might be different right versus like the lady that you cared for five years ago right is now the standard for every person that walks into your clinic right i mean listen medicine it's there's a lot of balances here on the one hand there's this push to be very standardized that everything Mm -hmm. should be the same and there are advantages to standardization you know Mm -hmm. less less mistakes people sort of like it's more clear. Everyone has rules. Da, 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 fine. Versus individualization, which has its advantages as well, because then you can personalize medicine, you can tailor things to individual. And those are, they're not in conflict, but there are sort of two sides of a coin. On the one hand, you yes. want things to be standardized. On the other hand, you want things to be individualized. And one of the arts of medicine is sort of knowing which way to lean. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, people differ. There's experience that gets about this. There's also, I would say, this idea in medicine where there are certain times in medicine where the doctor is supposed to say to the patient, this is what you should do, like to be very directive, Mm -hmm. right? And there's other times when the doctor is supposed to say, here's option A, here's option B, here's option C, here's the pros and cons of all of those. What do you want to do? right? Mm -hmm. The problem is you don't want a doctor who's always telling you what to do, right? Because that's like authoritative, you know, authoritative and it's very, you know, it's not right. And it's, and it's also usually not appropriate, but you also don't want a doctor who can't make up his or her goddamn mind. Right. And so (laughs) it's because it's, and you see the problems, like when we're training young doctors, we always talk about patient autonomy, patient autonomy, which is correct. Patients have autonomy to make decisions for themselves, but 
you also have a duty as a doctor, as a professional to, mm-hmm. if you believe one option is better than the other, to tell them and tell them why. Like if my plumber said to me, well, I could use the copper pipe or I could use the steel pipe. Which one do you want? I'd be like, I don't know which one I want. Like you which tell me what's better. Wait, <laughs> and, if he, and if he said to me, listen, you should absolutely have the copper pipe because they're better. I would say, fine, do that. But if you said to me, well, there's pluses and minuses. The copper is a little bit better, but costs a lot more. Like, And then I have to make a decision and that's appropriate. So the same is true in medicine. So if I have a patient with pneumonia and I said to her, well, you know, you can have antibiotics, you cannot have antibiotics. Like I'm an idiot. Like I should be saying to her, you have pneumonia, you need antibiotics. Cause that's, this is why I trained. I went to medical school to tell you, you need antibiotics. This is the one you should have. Fine. Mm-hmm. That's appropriate. But mm-hmm. in a VBAC, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to say that it says, okay, you have a 1% risk of uterine rupture. On the one hand, you can try a VBAC. Here's the advantages. Here's the disadvantages. Here's the yeah. risks. On the other hand, you can have a C-section. Here's the advantages. Here's the disadvantages. Here's the risks. I think they're both reasonable. Yeah. Do you have a preference? And do you, you know, which risk scares you more? And that's, that is appropriate. And so- I would say for people who are trying to figure out, do you have a good doctor? Do you have a good midwife? It's not just, are they kind? You want them to be kind. It's not just, are they smart? You want them to be smart. It's not just, does their office run on time? You want their office to run on time. It's also, do you get a sense that they have a good balance between when it's appropriate to tell you what they think is correct and Mm -hmm. when they give you options and have you participate in your healthcare decision-making? If they're always telling you what to do, probably it's too much on one end. If they never tell you what to do, it's probably too much on the other end and you need to strike a good balance. And so getting back to what you said about the reason you love me, uh, (laughs) is I don't, I definitely have situations where I tell people VBAC's not a good option for you. You shouldn't mm-hmm. do it. Like, it's a bad idea. I'm telling you it's a bad idea. Like, again, we're, we're not the police. I can't force someone to do something. You know, I'm not yeah. going to tie someone down to do C-section, but I will tell them this is a bad idea. But I would say that's the exception. Most of the mm-hmm. time it's, all right, here are the options. Here's what we're doing. And so it's not that we always just tell people, here are your options. And it's sort of like very touchy feely. Mm-hmm. We do that when it's appropriate and it's frequently yeah. appropriate, but sometimes we have to tell people like, it's a bad idea. This is why it's a bad idea. You should not choose this option because of A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, I'm very comfortable telling someone that, but I just usually don't have to. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Well, we're going to go into the very last topic. I know mm-hmm. we're kind of running out of time, um, but this is one where we're going to get stuff like that, where we're going to get like, you shouldn't do this. Right. Or the other opposite where it's like, right. You could probably, we could, we could, we could do this. Like right. we could, we could see how this goes and it's, and it's uterine rupture, right? We talk about uterine rupture, but more specifically to uterine window, mm. um, lots of people are quote unquote diagnosed or told that they had a uterine window, maybe in their first cesarean or multiple cesareans later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they shouldn't be back or they can't be back or mm-hmm. my specific provider told me I would for sure rupture, um, mm-hmm. like said those words, right? Like for mm-hmm. sure guaranteed. Um, mm-hmm. and then we have dehiscence, which is like sometimes just like chalked up into like a full uterine rupture, but we know it's not mm-hmm. anyway, there's like some mm-hmm. stickiness in there. So can we talk about that? Like if someone was told or if it was put in an op report that they had a uterine window or a slight mm-hmm. dehiscence, 
as an OB in your practice, what mm-hmm. would you suggest or how would you counsel right. moving forward? Right. So the short answer, I will give you the short answer, the long answer. The short answer is if I have someone who I think they have a uterine window, I would tell them not to be back mm-hmm. um, because I think the risk of rupture is too high. I would never tell someone you're for sure going to rupture because uh-huh. <laughs> that's not true with anybody, right? I mean, even you in the worst case that. scenario. Yeah. I mean, you know, someone has a prior classical C-section, they have a 10% risk of rupture. Someone who has a prior uterine rupture, it's not even 100%. So I don't think it's 100%, but it, it's usually too high for comfort. But the problem is not so much me making the recommendation, mm-hmm. don't VBAC if you have a uterine window, it's how do you make that diagnosis? Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the trickiness. Some of the confusion is that there's different terminology. And some of the reason is we don't have definitive definition. So for example, uterine rupture is very clear. That's when you're in labor and the entire uterus opens up internally and the baby, the placenta comes out like exactly what you would think a rupture is. So that's pretty Mm -hmm. clear. The terms dehiscence and window are frequently used interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And what they basically mean is the muscle of the uterus is separated, but the very thinnest outside layer of the uterus, what we call the serosa, which is like a saran wrap layer on top of the uterus, did not open. And so the baby did not protrude through this defect in the uterus. And go all through all the layers. Right. right. But basically went through all the muscular layers, which is basically like one step short of a rupture. Now, we don't know how many of those people would go on to rupture if you continue laboring them in that labor or if in the next pregnancy? No one knows because no one's really tried it. No one's really pushed that envelope because they're too afraid to. And so it's hard. So it's very unusual to be diagnosed with a window on your first C-section because usually it's not going to happen unless you've already had an incision on your mm-hmm. C-section. So usually it's someone who's had a C-section then on their second C-section, when someone goes in to make the incision, whether they tried to be back or didn't try to be back, they see this. And then they're talking about the next pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So most people are not going to recommend VBAC because the risk of rupture is too high in that circumstance. I fall into that camp as well. I am mm-hmm. humble enough to say it doesn't mean someone will rupture, but I think that that risk is too high. And I'm not really willing to test it out on someone because I think it's probably not safe. Now, right. jet, Now, sometimes someone may have been told they have a window and they really don't. It's hard to know. Yeah. There's another situation which is different, which is when someone is not pregnant and they have an ultrasound of their uterus and they see some form of a defect in their mm-hmm. prior C-section. So someone had one C-section, had the baby, they're not pregnant, they come to my yeah. office and I do an ultrasound and I look at the area of the scar and it looks like it wasn't healed perfectly. Properly. So instead of, well, it's not proper or improper, it's just frequently doesn't heal full thickness. Mm-hmm. So if let's say the uterus is a centimeter thick and I see that only half of the centimeter is closed and the other half of the centimeter is open, right? We call that sometimes a uterine niche, N-I-C-H-E. Mm-hmm. We sometimes call that a uterine defect. Some people call that a window, though it's not technically a window. And the question is, A, what does that mean? And B, what do you do about it? And the answer is, nobody knows. 
That's the problem. Yeah, no, that's the hard nobody, nobody knows. And exactly what you would do to allow a VBAC, not allow a VBAC, this, that. Generally, what a lot of people will do is if they've only had one C-section, they'll usually let them VBAC, but there's some data that if it's less than three millimeters remaining of like closed, yeah. their risk of rupture is somewhat higher. Again, that data itself is pretty weak. No one knows for sure. Should you use that? Should you not use that criteria? Very, very difficult. And you're going to see a lot of variation out there. Mm -hmm. In our practice, we don't use that test so much to decide whether someone should VBAC or not after their first C-section because the data doesn't support that. What we use it for is someone who's had multiple C-sections and they're already not planning to VBAC, but we're trying to figure out, is it safe to get pregnant at all? right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. do we need to fix this before pregnancy? Or if they get pregnant, do we have to deliver them at a different time? And that's a much more complicated discussion. But that's how we use it practically. If someone's had one C-section, I don't generally, generally recommend doing that test to check the thickness and then making decisions mm -hmm. based on it, because it's, it's not clear that your decision making is going to be any better with that information than without mm -hmm. that information. And so I don't use it personally, but definitely people will find it out there. They measure the thickness and they say it's too thin or this, and that data is all over the place, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe one day we'll work it out, but but not it hasn't been worked out yet. Hasn't, yeah. So can you can technically fix a niche? You can technically fix it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're safe to deliver vaginally the vaginally. next time. Yeah. These are all because that's new a uterine questions. procedure. Yeah. These are all new questions that are being sorted out yeah. uh it may take a very long time to sort it out but i would say yeah. it's for the sort of more quote-unquote typical person who's had one c-section that was basically fine you know went well and mm -hmm. she's trying to decide whether to v-back or not the current data does not support measuring the thickness of the scar routinely either prior to pregnancy or in pregnancy and then making decisions about v-back or not from it there are people who do it and i'm not saying it's wrong but the data to support that is pretty weak. So it's not something that's universally recommended to do. It's a different situation if someone had a C-section and then someone saw with their own eyes, there's something wrong with this uterus. Yeah. Or if someone's had multiple C-sections and then they see that those are different clinical situations uh, where mm -hmm. it might come in handy. Okay. Great answers. Awesome. Thank you seriously so much. It's just such a pleasure to have you and I do. I just enjoy talking with you and I think it's awesome. And I think this community is just absolutely going to keep loving these episodes. It's my pleasure. It's your wonderful Salt Lake City disposition. Yes. Next time <laughs> you're in Salt Lake, come say hi. <laughs> love it. We'll do it. Love Yay. Salt Lake City. Good stuff. Yes. I love it here, except for it's cold. <laughs> except for the cold. I hear you. I, I grew up in Chicago, which is where my pleasant disposition comes from. But yes, it's also cold in the winter. And that's a whole live. different cold. Yeah. But we don't get the skiing. So we get the cold, but not the skiing. So at least you get the mountains. So yep. you did it right. Yes, we did. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.